Anyways, appreciate you being here tonight. We're going to be we're going to start in Acts chapter two. So if you have a Bible and you want to join me there in Acts chapter two. Last week, we started looking at the church, and really started looking at the subject of the church. And last week, um, I uh, tried, endeavored to look at some scriptural examples on the subject of the church, and to really just ask the question, when we think about the church, and especially about this kind of church, what is a church? Uh, A lot of people have uh, different ideas of what a church is, what a church isn't. So we can ask ourselves, well, what is a church? And so we look that last week of some different examples that we have from scripture on how a church functioned, what a church did, some of the kind of the, the uh, overall big picture um, ideas, but I gave you a, a working definition of mine that a church is a localized group of believers collectively seeking to advance the kingdom of God to the glory of God. The idea that a church is a group of people gathered together. A group of believers are together, together, and a local idea advancing the kingdom of God. So, uh, just trying to, and what I'm trying to do here is not necessarily to answer anything, but to put some thoughts in your head that I would love for you to mull on and think about and consider. Um, because as we look at this more, there's going to be some more clarity as far as okay. So, um, when it comes to direction, when it comes to ideas, when it just comes to how we perceive it today, what should be our response or what should be our direction? moving forward. So last week, um, asking the question, what is a church? And this week, I want to ask another question kind of in line with that. And the question I want to ask tonight is, who is in the church? I realize that some of you may say, well, oh, that, that, that's pretty straightforward, but I hope to try to give you a little more nuance that sometimes it's not just as simple as we might think. Um, think about Every Sunday morning, especially the last two Sunday mornings, we've had more people um, than usual here on Sunday mornings. And when we come together on a Sunday morning, especially for a Sunday morning service, there is no doubt some in that room that are lost, some in that room that are saved, hopefully more than more saved than lost. But when we come together, we have people in that room both saved and lost. We have children, we have young adults, we have uh, middle-aged adults, we have senior adults. Uh, some of the people in the room are, quote, members of the church. Some of the people are not members of the church. But if we were to ask the question, well, who is in the church, then would we say that every person that is sitting in a seat in the sanctuary would be considered in the church in a spiritual uh, way? I mean, I realize they're in it in a physical way, but are they in the church? So who is in the church? Now, I realize that sometimes we may sit back and think, well, what does it matter? What does it matter if we find a definition or think about a definition of who is in the church? Well, here's why I think it should matter to us as uh, First Baptist Church of Wellston. If the church is a group of believers and the group of believers determines the direction and the focus of the church, then the composition of the group then directs and influences the faithfulness and the witness of the church. So if... Maybe just repeat that. So if the church is a group of believers, the group of believers is what steers the spiritualness of the church, then the witness and the testimony of the church is then a reflection of those that are considered to be the group of believers. And so if the church is going to be faithful, it requires faithful people to be in 
the church. Back in the 1560s, there was a preacher that proposed an idea. They were having a problem where um, they would have the Lord's Supper. And in that, in that setting, and especially in that era, um, the Lord's Supper was something that was very revered and was something that was considered to be very a, a holy endeavor and a holy moment. And so they had problems where people were showing up that were either unsaved, unregenerate people, or they were showing up, they were rabble-rousers, they were showing up and they were divisive people or divisive people type of people, or they were showing up and they were just there to watch the show or to come and to participate in the cup and the bread. And so they were showing up and they had this issue where people were showing up and they didn't know who was in the church and who wasn't in the church. And so there in the 1560s, a pastor proposed an idea of handing out these little communion tokens. You think about a a token you would take to an arcade or a token you would use at some other event. He talked about handing out these communion tokens. And so before they would come into the Lord's Supper, they would go around and all the people that were to be members of the church would all get a communion token. And then you would come up and you would present your token and you would receive the Lord's Supper. Uh, Many others said, that's a dumb idea. You're being too legalistic. That's not ever going to work. But yet in 1596, uh, some of the first recorded practices of that were taking place where you had numerous different congregations. And and as a means of identifying who is and who isn't, it was a way of then taking those tokens and those tokens were handed out by the leadership that knew who was in the church and who wasn't in the church. Later on, that practice was then... Then, um, kind of superseded or, or taken back by communion cards. They got away from the tokens and went to a card. You had a membership card. I know sometimes we may think, well, that's, that's a little bit wacky. Well, we have practices here as far as to identify who is eligible to vote in a certain matter, who el- isn't eligible to vote in a certain matter. And so the same thing that we do today to try to put some guardrails and put some, some protections in there was the same thing they were doing, but when it came to the Lord's Supper. Because you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and it talks about the unworthy or the unsaved to con- you know, participate in the Lord's Supper and the condemnation and the damnation they are drinking upon themselves, and it becomes a huge deal if a person wants to look at it. And so they said, we don't want to be guilty of allowing people to incur that kind of judgment on their lives inside of this facility. So it wasn't a legalistic manner. It was a means of protecting unknowing, ignorant, rebellious people from continuing in that uh, path of unrepentance. And so they, they had these communion code tokens to be able to identify who was and who wasn't. But I come back to this idea that if the church is going to be faithful as the body, then we're going to have to have, or it needs to have, it necessitates to have faithful individuals. So then, that comes to the question to me, well then, who is in the church? I'm going to give you another working definition, just an idea, and then we're going to start in Acts 2, and we're going to go quite a few different places this evening. But if you were to ask me, well, who is in the church, Spence? I would give you an answer like this. A church is composed of faithful believers working together to advance the gospel and serve the kingdom of God. Faithful church, or a church is composed of faithful believers working together to advance the gospel and serve the kingdom of God. I think when you think about who is in a church, it starts with the redeemed. It starts with the born again. It starts with the saved. Now, where do we get that kind of a picture from? Well, in Acts chapter 2, um, it's a very uh, 
popular passage because it's the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then it's the also when Peter gets up and he begins his sermon there at Pentecost. And it tells us there, starting in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2, you see the sermon that Paul or that Peter preached there at Pentecost. You get down to verse 37, and after he had preached Peter's first sermon, if you will, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then you skip down to verse 41 and it says, So those who received His word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now we don't know of the formula. We don't know of the formality that they had to go through. I don't know if they all had to walk up to the front of the, the church. I don't know if they all had to fill out a card. I don't know if they all had to be voted on individually. But you see where God is adding to the number of the people that would be comprised of the church. And He's doing that through salvation. He's doing that through people, believers, coming into the faith family. You get down there to Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. It talks about the fellowship of believers starting in verse 42. But then you get down to verse 47. The last sentence is, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we get this picture that those that were considered to be part of this early New Testament church were believers. Saved people brought from a state of lostness to a state of salvation. Peter is going in with his uh, his counterpart there into the temple in Acts chapter 3 and Peter and John are going in the, the lame beggar is sitting there he heals the lame beggar, the lame beggar gets up and he's excited, a whole crowd starts getting stirred up, what's going on what's happening, Peter preaches again but before he's able to give the invitation uh, the Sadducees and the other religious leaders come and arrest them but if you look at Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, but many of those who had heard the word believed in the number of the men came to about 5,000. So even though they were arrested, there were still people who believed, and it is accredited that those people were added to the number. Now, we don't know if they were added initially to the roll, but we don't have any indication that there was such a thing as church rolls, but they were considered to be in the church. But then maybe a confusing passage for me is when you get over to Acts chapter 5 and you have the scene of Ananias and Sapphira and you see what happens to them. Many of you know that story. But if you get down to verse 12, it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles and they were all together in Solomon's portico. But then listen to verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So you get this idea that these signs and wonders are being done, but then all the people that were uh, around them and watching from a distance, no one dared join them. But then you get to verse 14, and it seems like, in Toby's words, there would be a contradiction. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. So we get this picture that even though there was a certain amount of watching from a distance from some, God was still adding to the church. He was still adding to the number. And who was He adding to the number of the church? He was bringing people who were saved. Believers in Jesus Christ. And He was bringing them into the fold. So why would I say that a church, who is in the church? A church is people that are composed of faithful believers working together because that is the example. Whether it's Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, we see these 
these, these believers, as they're being brought into the church, they're not brought into the church to be divisive. They're not brought into the church to separate. They're not brought into the church to split. They're brought into the church to edify, to grow, and to advance the work that God had given them to do. But if you've been in church for any length of time, you know that it's not always that pretty of a picture. When you get enough people in the same room together, you're going to have a variety of people. And it's not even a matter of us all having to have conformity to one another. The Bible, uh, but what my understanding of the Bible, it doesn't call us to be conformed to one another. It calls us to be conformed in the image of Christ. But it does call for us to have a unity in our spirits, a unity in our hearts. But it seems to me in my uh, short experience that when you get enough people together, you're going to have enough differences of opinions and you're going to have an opportunity for opposition to take seat. So the Bible gives us pictures. It gives us pictures of what do we do, what do we think about when it comes to the unfaithful or unregenerate. So you have individuals in the church. um, Some um, pundits would say that when it comes to the composition of a church, it doesn't matter whether they're members or not. You have a large majority of the people that are in the church by the church's standards that aren't saved. You have people that are coming, even though their name is on a membership roll, even though they have be identified as being in the church, they are being unfaithful. They are being rebellious in their lifestyles. They're being un- rebellious in their practices and their attitudes. Or they're coming to church and even though they've been in church all their life, they've never had that heart change. They've never been made into a new creation through that moment of salvation. So what is it, if we're going to think about who is in the church, then we also need to ask the question, what do we do, what do we say, how do we think about those that are considered to be in the church but are living and acting and practicing in an unfaithful manner? Well, 1 Corinthians expresses all of that. Longtime president of the seminary down there in Fort Worth, Dr. Paige Patterson, I've heard him say numerous times to young preachers or preachers going to a new church, he would say, when you go to that church, the best thing you can do is preach through 1 Corinthians. He says, because when you go to a new church, you're going to have all of these types of people there in the church, and it's best to address it at the very get-go instead of trying to wait until later on. So when you think about the letter of 1 Corinthians, I'm sure that many of you have read it and are familiar with it, but the whole letter is really Paul trying to address errors that were in the church. Errors of unfaithfulness and even errors of people being there that were looking like, being like, acting like, considered to be like everyone else, and yet they were unregenerate. So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, um, he talks about this idea of this spiritual wisdom, and how do we have this wisdom? In fact, he gets down there in verse 14, and he draws the, the need for us to be aware that we are supposed to be pursuing this spiritual wisdom and not this man wisdom, because he says there in verse 14 of chapter 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So he, he reminds us that there is a need for the church to be comprised and composed of spiritually minded, spiritually wise, spiritually discerning individuals. Well, then you go on to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and he talks about these actions. These actions that were dividing the church. The actions that were taking place. Now, this isn't a picture of outside versus inside. These are things that were taking place inside the church. 
Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. While there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Paul is going to drive this home that there are divisions, there are fractions, schisms within the church that arise not from the Spirit, but arise from the flesh. And I think that we would be remiss, naive, to think that every time we come together that every single person is right where God wants them to be. The reality that Paul reminds us, the reality that we know if you've been in church for any period of time, is you have a, uh, a collection of different attitudes. You have a collection of different types of people. And it all should come into us thinking about, well, who is in the church? You get over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and so Paul starts laying in. And he starts talking about these, these different elements that were present in the church that were causing divisions. These different elements that were present in the church that was causing problems. These different elements in the church that were breaking up the unity and and stifling the progress and the mission of the church. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about sexual morality. And especially the rank kind of sexual immorality that he talks about as being that not only was it happening, but it was public and people knew about it and people weren't doing anything about it. Doesn't that sound like the days we're living in today? People know that it's going on. They say, oh, you shouldn't do that. But we don't do anything about it. And Paul is saying that is causing problems within the church. 1 Corinthians 6, he he talks about these lawsuits. And he talks about this idea that they were going to be a a very litigious society. And and everybody was suing someone else. You made me mad and I'm just going to go sue you. And he was trying to make the point there in in chapter 6. There shouldn't be lawsuits between believers. There shouldn't be this kind of division. We should look for man's courts and man's systems to solve the problems between brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, I was at Zanias and had a had, had a faithful brother in the faith down there, and something was said about a disagreement that he was having on a on a social level outside the church. He made something about well, he was just going to file a suit, and I said, "Why? Well, because they wronged me." And I said, "Well, here's the danger: you're out of you're out of line when it comes to First Corinthians chapter six. He didn't like it." I didn't want to tell him, but I just said, brother, I encourage you to go and read this and I encourage you to think about what this means for you because I fear that you are pursuing your own selfish desires and whether it's right or wrong, that makes no difference. In fact, Paul even says there in chapter 6, I would rather be defrauded than to try to make something right and bring an embarrassment to the church. So he talks about uh, lawsuits against believers, 1 Corinthians 8, talks about people offending others through what they eat and how they eat and their daily dietary practices. And there's a whole spill in there about the food offered to idols, but he's just saying that, hey, these are also bringing divisions. These are also things that are harming the life of the church. When you have these unfaithful, unregenerate, unrepentant people acting and behaving in the church, it's bringing schisms and divisions. 1 Corinthians 11 is the 
same sort of thing. Now, um, it's, a, it's a popular conversation when it comes to the idea of head coverings and everybody wants to get their, their cackles up and say, well, you know, what's, what's being said there? Well, the general idea is Paul is saying that by your outward appearance, you're bringing disdain and dishonor to the name of Christ. By how you appear, by how you look, by how you present yourself, you're harming your witness. So that whole letter there to 1 Corinthians, and then he goes on in 12, 13, 14, and 15 saying this is how it should look. This is how it should mesh together and that would be a great study for us to go through at some point. But that whole letter is him trying to point to that these are all people that were considered by the church at Corinth, 1st Baptist Church Corinth. They were all considered to be in the church and yet they, those that were in the church were causing division and he was saying you need to be on guard and those that are in error or those that are a fault needed, you need to address it. So we need to ask ourselves, well, who is in the church? Do we have those characters represented here? And and it's not just the unfaithful or the unregenerate, but Paul also talks about, back over in Acts chapter 20, he talks about those that were false teachers or divisive people. In fact, as he is leaving the the group there in Ephesus and he's headed back to Jerusalem, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders as they had come down to see him. And there's all these tears, there's all these uh, longings to say, I I don't want to see you go. But he says this there in Acts chapter 20 and verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years that did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And he goes on to say, this was my witness. This was my practice. But Paul is very clear that he knew that there was a danger coming and this danger was is that these false teachers, these false prophets, these these misled, misguided, and sometimes charlatans were rising up trying to lead the people astray. And more so today than probably any time in the history of the church we have not only the amount of false teaching that is out there, but the ease of access to that false teaching. I mean, once upon a time, for a false teacher to gain a following, not only did they have to get a group of believers in their local area, but then they had to go physically from place to place to place, sharing, promoting, teaching, falsely teaching their false doctrines. But now, through podcasts, through YouTube, through all these online video formats, they can be broadcast all throughout the world. And then they start to find a platform and then they start to find a following and then people, because they're ignorant of what their Bible says, they don't know whether it's false or not. I was staying at the seminary one night for a conference or something and I was there on the seminary campus. They actually have a a lodging area, very much like a hotel, if you will. And so, got in the hotel and I was looking and you know how you get in those hotels and it has the channel lineup on the channel card. And so I look on there and it had seminary information, channel such and such, channel 36. Well, I wonder wonder what they have on this. And I'm a student at this point and so I turn on channel 36. And it's Jesse Duplantis. And he's just going 
up a storm about how that when you're right before God, God will give you all the money. Just look at Him, how He has all this money, and that's a, that's a, that's a sign of God's favor on your life. And He was going back to the example that you had of like Abram and Jacob, where God showed His favor and His blessings upon their lives by giving them great riches and great blessings. And so therefore, He was drawing that to a connection today to say, see, so therefore, me having all of this possessions is mean that I have God's favor in my life. And because I have God's favor in my life, I want to share it with you. So send me contribution, support, the ministry, and I will pray that God extends His favor upon you. And I'm watching this, and I'm pretty sure that wasn't wasn't the the attention or the philosophy of the school. So the next day, I sent an email to the president of the seminary, Dr. Patterson. And I said, Dr. Patterson, not only am I a uh, pastor at a, at a local Baptist church, I'm also a student. And I'm going to tell you, I don't agree with you having this. And he sent me back a very sweet email to inform me that it was an error in the management or error in the channel lineup. There was an error that was made. He was unaware of it. He had addressed it. It would not be made again. And he apologized for the witness and the, uh, the appearance that it gave. So you know what happened the next time I was staying on campus? I went to channel 36. Nobody was there. He had corrected it. The problem is is that that kind of false teaching is all over the place. And we got to be careful of it. And we live in a day and age Paul knew it that this was going to arise. It can arise even within the church. Even where you might think this is a safe place. You might think that oh no everybody has the same mind. Everybody has the same attitude. We are all in one accord. We never know what Satan might be doing to spring up false teaching, false understanding even in our midst. 1 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 6, 2 Timothy 3, 2 Peter 2, they all are passages that speak about the danger of false teachers. I would submit to you that if they're going to talk about it that much, there must have been a real threat that they could see. And I don't think that real threat has subsided or gone away. I think that we need to be aware that these things can always have the opportunity or always have the possibility of creeping up in the life of the church. Titus 3 talks about the danger of divisive people. Sometimes it's there's some people that you just can't make happy no matter what you do. It's 68, 70 degrees, 72. Red chairs, blue chairs, green chairs. You sit down the entire song service, you stand up the entire song service, all hymns, all piano, nothing else, all contemporary, 125 decibels. It, sometimes it doesn't matter. It's been amazing to me in the short time that I've been in ministry because I'm usually the one that is involved with setting the thermostats because usually you're here first. That's what happens. And so it's amazing to me. The thermostat will be the same this week and somebody will come in and say, man, I'm hot. Next week, the thermostat will be the exact same temperature and they'll come in and say, it's freezing in here. (laughs) Now I realize it all depends on what's going on outside in the environment and I get all that, but it's amazing how from one Sunday to another Sunday, their mind changes and and their attitude can change. But the the, the problem is, is that that might be innocent and while that really doesn't have any kind of harmful reactions, we still also have divisive people that are in the church. Titus 3, starting in verse 9, Paul writes this to Titus. 
He said, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, we talked this morning about needing to stir one another up, but that is to love and good works. He is talking here about individuals that stir one another up to division. He says, after warning them once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. One of the most common phrases the divisive people will use is preacher some of us have been talking (laughs) they never qualify number or name they'll just come up and say preacher some of us have been talking and I can already tell you that (laughs) the majority of the time when they say some of us have been talking there is something that they are taking objection to And that's not always meant to try to be divisive. It may just be a suggestion. It may be something else. But we always have to be careful that these means of uh, dividing a church is always present. And you might be thinking to yourself right now, well, does the composition of the church really matter? Is it really that big of a deal that we think about who is in the church, who isn't in the church, or we think about those that are in the church, how should we look, how should we respond, how should we react to those that are in the church? Well, um, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. I think, if my memory's right, uh, I know Mo has been going through Revelation. I think he's already passed Revelation 2 and 3 by now, I think, Mo. But, uh, what? Barely. Okay, barely. But I think even if when Barry was here doing his service here to the church, I think he went through these seven churches. So I don't. I know this isn't anything new to you. But when you get to Revelation two through Revelation three, you have these letters to the seven churches. And when you read the letter to the seven churches, the way that I understand it, the way that I read it, five of the seven churches are found to be in error. Two of the churches are commended. Five of the seven are called out for their era. If you look at Revelation 2 and verse 4, as he's writing to the church in Ephesus, John is writing this, but God is, or Jesus is giving him this message. It says, but I have this against you. You get to the church of Smyrna, there is no um, accusation, there is no charge against them for error, but then you get to the church of Pergamum. uh, Chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, but I have a few things against you. The same thing when it comes to the church in Thyatira, down in verse 20. But I have this against you. They go to the church of Sardis in in chapter 3 and verse 2. I have not found your works complete. Then you get to the church of Philadelphia. It's the second church that there is not a, a judgment that is levied against the church. Then you get down to verse 15 of chapter 3 talking to the church in Laodicea and he says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would you or would that you were either cold or hot? So there are five of the seven churches he has a uh, something negative to say about them. And if you were to go back, if we were to have time, I'm not going to take the time this evening, but if you were to go back and look at it, all the errors that he is addressing are errors that are still present in this world today. I'm not saying that all these errors are still present in this church today. I'm just saying that all these errors are still found in society and in our culture today. And all of these errors, God didn't just point out and say, you know what, I just don't like the color of that. I don't like the flavor of that. He said these are errors and they brought threat and condemnation from God. 
He either threatened to take away their, their candlestick, pretty much take away, uh, take away His presence, His, His grace, His mercy in his, their life. He's saying, I will come and, and I, I will, you know, this is my threat, this is my condemnation. You're doing it. Cut it out. This is wrong. And when you think about what it was, is they had people in the church that were acting in such a way. They had the church that was allowing them to act in such a way. And what it did was, it damaged the testimony and the witness of the church. So if the testimony and the witness of the church matters to God, I think it should matter to us. And the testimony and the witness of the church is a reflection of those that are in the church. Which brings me back to something that I think that we should be thinking about is then who is in the church. I don't have a chapter and verse there. Jesus lays it out and says, well, this is how you do it. Here's how you organize membership roles. This is how you set it up. But we realize that not only did Jesus initiate, He birthed the church. We see that God added to the church when people were being saved and people were being edified and people were having this unity of heart and mind together. This church was growing. But then we also see by the time they get to 1 Corinthians how this division and this unrest had been brought in. Paul is warning Titus and Timothy Second Peter is warning his uh, people that he was influencing and leading. They're all saying, hey, be on guard because just because the people are in the church doesn't mean that they're healthy for the church. And so brings us back to ask the question, well, who is in the church? So I got five questions that I would ask that you would just consider and then we can have time. You can bounce this back and forth. Give me some pushback, some ideas. Five questions just kind of put a bow on this. First question is this. How do we define who is in the church? And I realize we have a constitution of bylaws. I realize that we have church tradition. I realize that we have an established practice of doing some of these things. So I'm not trying to say that we have to come up with anything new or our own. I realize that we've already outlined some of these things. But I'm saying from a scriptural basis, how do we define who is in the church? I cannot find for you anywhere in the New Testament where these people were baptized and the church took a vote on whether to accept them in membership. I don't have a chapter and verse to tell you that somebody came up on a promise of a letter from First Baptist Church Ephesus and wanted to join First Baptist Church Thessalonica and they were accepted in membership. I don't have a chapter and verse for you that says that somebody came up and said I was saved and baptized at Ephesus but now I'm down here in Pergamum and I want to join the church and they accepted their membership into their church. I don't have some of that. And so in the absence of that, we have to think, okay, well, in the picture of this church today, how do we define who is in the church? The second question is how do we best edify, strengthen, and support the church? How do we do that? Do we do that by just opening the doors and anybody and everybody? Do we do that by teaching, admonishing, Exhorting? Do we do that by warning, guarding, and protecting? The third question. What part does God expect us to play in guarding the church? Because I battle back and forth a lot of times where Peter is writing to the shepherds there in 1 Peter chapter 5 and he says, guard the flock. 
shepherd those that have been entrusted to you. And you say, oh, so it's all our responsibility to guard the gate. The problem is, is that God is enough without us. God doesn't need me to keep the wolves at bay. God is enough. But at the same time, there's a responsibility on our part as believers coming together, faithful believers. There's still a responsibility on our part on what it means for us to guard and protect the, the, the flock of Jesus Christ. What does that look like? What, what part are we expected to play? I think I've shared this, I think, with Van the other day. But uh, first church I was serving as the pastor of, um, we'd gone from about 20 to about 40 in attendance, which doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a 100% increase, and that was awesome. And out of those 20 people that had started coming, the first people that had started coming were our landlords. We were living there in Ardmore, and they had been out of church for a long season of time. They were coming to church, and um, they decided that they wanted to join the church. And they were excited. And I was excited because I saw that this was a step of them moving back in their walk before Christ. And so they come up before the church, and... uh, They say, you know, we want to join the church. And so I present them for church membership. And in that period of time, I would say, hey, you know, they come. They want to join the church. What is the will of the church? I won't ever say that again. But I said at that one time, what is the will of the church? And one of the original 20, pretty much the ringleader, nobody says anything. And I thought, well, this is bad. And then he speaks up and says... What exactly are your intentions of joining the church? And I was taken back. And he says, I want to know just, you know, what what your plan is. Now, to give him credit, in his mind... As the landlord started coming, it was like dominoes. And they invited this friend, and they invited this friend. And so pretty much the 20 that had been coming, they were all connected in some type of relationship matter. So this isn't out of reason or rhyme where people come to a business meeting just to vote on something that is in contention and looking to do something and, you know, show up just for the business meeting. It's not out of line to think that people would join the church right before a major decision. I mean, there are guards, there are protections. Some of you would have stories of stacking a vote or people joining just so they could vote in a particular manner. I mean, this thing happens all the time. So in his defense, he might have been concerned that I was trying to stack the deck, if you will. So he says, well, what are your intentions for joining the church? I made it super awkward, super uncomfortable. Those two got upset. They marched out of the church. And when they left out of the church, he's staring at me. And he kind of has this smug look like I knew it. I said, well, let's just close in a word of prayer and go home. Because I didn't know what to do at this point. There's no lesson. There's no book on how do you deal with this. And there's definitely not a chapter and verse that says, what do you do when this happens? He interrupted. And he said, no, I want to talk about it. And then he wanted to go into a discussion about it is our responsibility to protect and guard the integrity of the church. His position was is that he wanted to know, one, why they'd been out of church for so long, what was their desire of joining the church, and he thought that, hey, it's important that we guard and protect the integrity of the church. And if we just let anybody that steps up in the front of the church join the church, then we're opening ourselves up for potential division and false teaching down the road. I didn't agree with him. But I can at least understand where he was coming from. I wish that he would have handled it differently. And in fact, I told him, well, brother, if you had that many concerns, why hadn't you gone to them and talked to them 
when they first started attending the church? Why hadn't you had them over? Why hadn't you been over to them? Why hadn't you gone out if you uh, to eat somewhere? If you had had these questions, then why didn't you uh, feel these during the last two or three months that you could have done that? But I say that to say this... I realize that God is sovereign and I realize that God doesn't need me to do what God is willing to do. But at the same time, we have a role that we play in guarding the church. So what is that role? Fourth question. What responsibility do we have in protecting the church? Guarding and protecting the church. Sometimes we can err on the side of legalism. And try to say, well, this person isn't allowed, that person isn't allowed, I don't know if I like that person. And sometimes it can be selfishly motivated. Sometimes it can be fleshly driven. How do we know what responsibility we have? Question number five. What methods or policies are needed to be a faithful church in the eyes of God? I think that matters. Because we're not living for the applause of men. We're not living for the satisfaction of men. We're not living to be popular in the eyes of men. We're living for the faithfulness of God. So what does it look like or what methods or policies do we need to consider or strengthen or rework or continue to use that are seen as being faithful in the eyes of God? And then here's the last question and we'll be done. What would God write about us? Think about the seven churches in Revelation. He wrote about every church and wrote something about the church. What would he write about First Baptist Church, Wellston? You did that. Okay. Because with Jason? Okay. Well, I man, because you think about it. He, he wrote and he gave them feedback and he gave them a perspective of what he saw. So I think, what is it that God would say to us?